Welcome back to the Morning Brushback. Before we get started today, I just want to give you a quick note for those of you listening here on podcast land. We had some technical difficulties, which is something that when we do this podcast live, uh, we can't always quite resolve before we go out there and get moving. So in this episode, you'll hear that my audio is pretty terrible for the first eight minutes or so, then it improves drastically when I figured out my mic. Um, we also had some issues with Matt early in the, in the first five or six minutes, which we also resolved on the fly. So stick with us. I know the first um, couple minutes of this show are a little bit rough, but they smooth out tremendously as we go. So thanks for watching and enjoy the episode with Matt Swope. All right. Uh, thanks for being here. We are live. This is the Morning Brushback Podcast. I'm your co-host, Dan Blewett, and I'm joined here remotely by my co-host, Bobby Stevens. Bobby, how you doing? Doing good. Good morning. Good morning. And we have an awesome guest today, Matt Swope, Assistant Coach, Recruiting Coordinator of the University of Maryland, is here with us. Matt, how you doing? Great. Good morning. Thanks for having me. Yeah. We, uh, well, one thing, and I, I would love to put this to bed forever and then never talking about hitting. I'd, I'd love to never talk about hitting Twitter ever again, but uh, we want to have no, him on the show no. because he's one of the, the very, I think, very balanced hitting guys out there on the web. And obviously he's in the Division One baseball world. So he works with a lot of players, not just in tunnels, but in real baseball matches. Um, and I followed a lot of Matt's stuff and he does, he does a really good job just explaining things. He's not, I mean, Matt, so let me just jump right into it, Matt. How, as a coach, how do you find the balance between being complex and using like the, maybe like you know a lot of the biomechanical stuff and a lot of like the why behind it. How much do you distill it down and break it down into layman terms for your athletes? Well, you know, I thought there is. Yeah, yeah. Did you get, uh, yeah. Did you I hear my question? You know, everybody, everybody's different. Yeah, yeah. Okay. I think everybody's different. You just have to break it down to, really understand the athlete and what i mean by that is everybody learned differently whether it's through internal cues external cues um you know sometimes i need to see it on video so i think you know what doesn't get talked about all the time on the internet is taking the time to learn about that specific individual player um and i think guys that do it on the field every day that's that's what my focus is is how can i get to this kid and develop him but i need to know what makes him tick and what makes him uh what makes him learn so um, that's always my first focus. It's, it's not about, hey, let's go straight to the mechanics or let's go straight to um, culture or something else. I, I think you need to find out what type of kid he is and how he learns first before you can start diagnosing the other things. Gotcha, gotcha. Um, so one of my questions, uh, you do a lot of different stuff with a lot of different tools. And we know there's been like this war on the internet about PVC pipes and all these other things. And um, we're going to kind of go back and forth between like your story and university of Maryland, all this other stuff today, but I want to kind of kick off. Um, what do we use PVC pipes for in baseball? Why do we use PVC pipes? I mean, like, honestly, like it's become highlighted these days because of the internet. But when I was growing up, what made me good was, you know, I had this small patch of grass in the backyard, and if I hit it to the left, it went over the fence. And if I hit it to the right, it went over the fence. So I don't care if it was a stick. I don't care if it was a log. I don't care if it was a wiffle ball bat. I don't care what it was. I used anything that was around. So why is that any different now? So just because we're singling out a PVC pipe, it may work for some guys. You know, and the reason why it works is because it's a elongated pipe that you can see in front of you. So if a guy has shoulder issues, 
and he goes to step and doesn't realize the first thing he does is go like that, then he's going to have a counter movement to that. So that, that guy may need a visual to be a visual learner by seeing something like that in a mirror to be like, oh, wow, now I see it. I didn't realize I did that every time I step to get to a balance 50-50. So that may work for him. But when it comes to just tools in general, like, you know, I, I mean, personally, I think we've been using things for, for the last 60, 70 years. There was no internet and nobody was talking about it. So I think, you know, depending on where you're at in the country or the world, um, and you'll see this a lot in the Dominican or, or guys down there, they use whatever they can get. I mean, you have to be creative. And yeah, especially sure. what we're seeing right, right now with the coronavirus, we're all basement lifters right now. So Yeah, the PVC pipe has become the new, uh, the new broomstick and uh, bottle cap in your backyard hitting, you know, that's you, you guys, you bet uh, both of you guys have played uh, pro ball. It's you talk to guys from Dominican or Puerto Rico. They always talk about hitting bottle caps, like flinging the bottle cap uh, and trying to hit it with a broomstick. So it, to some extent, that's the, uh, it's the American version of, of their, uh, of their broomstick bottle cap. Yeah, we, have indoor, we have indoor plumbing here. We have indoor plumbing. So let's use our, our plumbing, plumbing <laughs> supplies. Um, I mean, we could use copper tubing. You probably have bloody hands at the end, but um, I mean, that's a good answer. And I think, you know, it's so easy. And this is one of the reasons that I'm not a huge fan of Instagram, at least for giving out my own content, because I don't feel like I can distill it down well enough and have like the context. Because pitching, you can only so show so many videos of like pitching mechanics, right? And then pitching becomes very intangible and mental and strategic. And it requires, I think, a little more than a 45 second, like, quick tip word vomit thing. And at least that's how with the stuff that I try to convey, that's where I am. Um, but I think you're right that it's easy to say like, here's a snapshot of someone doing a drill that looks silly. That's stupid. PVC is trash. But with like the context, like what you said, if that helps the guy realize that he lunges out, that makes a lot of sense. Yep. And it's just one of those things where I guess, uh, you know, there's a lot of stuff lost in translation. Now, is there any of the new tech that is out there now that you've, tinkered with and maybe you don't like, or maybe you're like, Hey, I don't use this as much as I thought I would, or it's a little bit tough to use, um, you know, with, uh, like some kind of practical applications, like where are you with that all, with on all that stuff? Yeah. I mean, I think today, like we, we measure stuff because it could be measured, right? Like, but the, the thing as a coach, like my job is how can I apply it? And that that's really all that yeah. matters. So, uh, yes, we have blast yet. Yeah, we got rap soda last year. Um, you know, we, we, we don't have all the bells and whistles. Our facility is just okay right now. We don't have track man, so we don't have some other stuff. So I have to be pretty blue, blue collar and how I kind of, you know, assess them on the zone and, and discipline and approach. But, you know, for Blast, for instance, I'll pay attention to their attack angle. Um, I'll yeah. pay attention to their back quickness, and that's it. Like, I don't want to pay attention to anything else. Like, the guys need to dumb it down. Like, if you asked any baseball player a question, it's like, what is attack angle? Uh I think eight or nine out of 10 of the kids wouldn't even know what it is. So, but you ask yeah, them what right. the launch angle is and they think they know. So to me with the attack angle, my job is to say, Hey, you know, the pitches and the average fastball is coming in at negative six degrees. The average breaking ball is coming in at negative 10. You need to match your plane in a positive way, probably between five and 10, unless you're a power hitter. So, you know, I dummy it down right from the beginning and say, Hey man, if you're swinging at a two, you're probably a little bit too level, and that's why you're hitting a lot of ground balls. Or if you're at an 18 to 20 attack angle, but you're a second baseman that's 5'9 and run a 6'6, it's probably not going to fit your profile for what type of player you are. So, 
there's things like that right off the bat that you can educate guys, but not make it too complicated. There's also different things in Rapsodo where you could like look at spin off the bat. Um, obviously lower spin supposedly is more, is better for hitters. So there's things as coaches you can dive into to kind of absorb that data and see if you can apply it. And there's things that are, that are just, you need to, that need to be simplified for the player. I think if you flood them, uh, you know, it's hard enough to try to get them to go to class every day, go to study hall, uh, eat, eat, three, eat three meals a day. I think if you just start flooding them with tech and data, uh, they're going to be lost. So again, that just goes back to what I said about learning that player specifically and kind of, you know, some guys like it, some guys don't, but you know, my job is, is to make them the best player they could be. So I have to apply it where I see fit. So you talk about track, man. I mean, those are 40, $50,000 systems. Do you see the University of Maryland getting one of those? Is that in your in your pipeline? Are there other technologies? Like I know FlightScope does something similar for a lot lower price tag. Um, yeah, where are you yeah. guys at on your like your procurement stuff? Yeah, I mean we're, we we tried to start a uh, uh, like an analytics department last year, uh, working with the math department a little bit. Um, we have a three hundred million dollar indoor football indoor that the first. Well, that's not terrible, huh? <laughs> first phase is done, and they're putting a, a world renowned like innovative center in there it's going to have a biomechanics lab um they're going to bring university of maryland from baltimore down so our hospital so there's going to be a lot of things biomechanically um and analytically that we can hopefully combine so we're going to try to have a lab maybe in the in the new coal field house on the indoor and then from our perspective you know obviously as soon as we can get something like yakker tech or or, or hawkeye or Trackman yeah. or something like that we we like it because Honestly, dude, I, I go back and I watch every single pitch of every game, and then I give the hitters a report card on uh, the pitches they should have swung at or did they swing at balls. So I'm going back and watching an hour of every pitch with something that one button for TrackMan can do. So, um, And it's not results-based. It's just owning the zone. So um, I'd like to get that because then I can t- put that time and be efficient in something else. Uh, but I, I think even with TrackMan, I, I, I think these days – the types of things that are trending with data are more towards pitching. I think pitching is way advanced, way ahead of the hitting side of it. And I know we have KVEST. I know we have Blast. But I'm looking forward to see what Hawkeye does at the major league level because, again, you know, you, you see exit velocity and launch angle. Those, those are results of, of balls being hit. There, there's not a lot of broken down swing path. What was their attack angle? What, did, what, what was there all these different things? Yeah, um, in yeah. the game that you're seeing from the pitching side and or just result based stuff. So um, ideally, I'd like to have it sooner than later. But, uh, you know, we'll see how that goes. Yeah, you definitely hit it on the head with uh, you guys hear me with, uh, yeah. you know, it's definitely more advanced on the pitching side. And I always point this out. It's like pitching. You're not reacting. You're you're very proactive with it. You know, you have the ball. You can manipulate the ball. The spin rate matters because that's just, you know you're the one touching it. But as a hitter, and you know this t- working with guys, it's so mental and it's so reactive that you, you sometimes you're just trying to weed through all the all the crap that guys have in their head to figure out you know were you even looking for a fastball in this specific situation? Um, you know I want to stay on Maryland for a second because you know Big Ten school and we do have a lot of parents and kids that listen. You know. Talk about just college baseball, Division One baseball at you know at your level, the Big Ten level in general. 
you know, you guys don't, you, you have some of the tech, but not all the tech. And Maryland is a, is a big school, big 10, you know, uh, storied basketball program. You know, it's not a, uh, not an, what a, I would consider like an underfunded school by any means. So, you know, where does baseball fall in the pecking order for you guys at the school and, you know, kind of give people an idea on that don't really understand of where baseball falls as far as a, a college sport on some campuses? Well, I think any anytime you, you just cut that Mason-Dixon line in half and go north, right, like it's it, it, traditionally you're getting basketball, you're getting football, you're getting those big-time schools. And with that, you know, with those bigger schools sometimes on the north, they have more sports than this, than down south, right? Like, you know, we're playing lacrosse, but we have – Wrestle. We have everything, but you go down south, they don't really have that. So, lacrosse. Don't get me. Yeah. Don't get me started with lacrosse. <laughs> <laughs> um, so I, I think that's that's a part of it, right? Because you know, the more sports we have, the more funding that's going into football and basketball and all that. Like, it's just natural that it's just not going to be dispersed the same. Um, I think we've done a great job, man. Honestly, you know, when I first got here, uh, we won those two regionals in, in fourteen and fifteen, and we kind of forced the hand. And not that we're not getting support from uh, the institution because I love Maryland and, and we've come a long way. But I think sometimes like, you know, until you do something to change it and start winning, I mean, not, <laughs> it's kind of like, why, why is it, why is this Northeast school that's won a national championship in basketball and, you know, done fairly well in football in the two thousands going to just invest in a sport like baseball. So yeah. I think we, we've kind of taken care of that as far as that goes is, you know, kind of up and everything. We, we did a $2 million upgrade to the field two years ago. We have a $1.5 million indoor being built um, this summer. Uh, that'll, that'll be able to really upgrade that facility behind left field. So, you know, we're taking steps and, and we did that by winning early and, you know, we're killing it recruiting right now. And I, I, we use this sometimes with recruits, right? Um, Jim Sloshnagel is from Maryland. Uh, he interviewed for the job when I played there in, in 1999 or 2000, I think it was. And I just look at TCU now uh, and, and what it was then. TCU and U, UVA had a worse facility than we did when I played versus them when I, was, when, I, when I was in Maryland. So you have to look at it like that from a broad view and say, we can be that. It can't be, let's yeah. complain and do this and that. So, you know, when I talk about my passion and vision for Maryland, nobody knew about TCU and UVA wasn't any good then. You have to do something yep. to change it. If you're, you know, as a coach, if you just sometimes guys want to go in and have be able to turn the key and have the facility and, and, and just kind of do their thing. That's fine too, but we're going to build something special here. Uh, we've been one game away from Omaha and, you know, it's just, it's something that I'm just excited to keep building. And, you know, if the facilities and tech and all that stuff comes great, but um, we're just going to keep grinding it out. Well, it's funny you mentioned that I went to a, uh, I guess it was 2009. I was, I just graduated from UMBC I was uh, in a, I was just like maybe nine months out of Tommy John. I went to an open, uh, MLB, you know, one of those cattle call tryouts. Mm -hmm. And there was a pitcher from UVA there and he like just wasn't very good. And I was just like looking at him because he was in his uniform and there are a couple other guys in uniforms. Like you try to make, you know, the scouts know who you are or whatever. Um, but you're right back then, 2000, I think that was 2000. Yeah. 2009 Maryland was, or uh, Virginia, I'm sorry. Virginia was just a whatever school, you know, they were fit 500 every year, I guess. But um, but yeah, they're certainly not that now. And it's to the point where you can't even remember them being bad. Mm -hmm. So it is interesting. Like you say that we, you kind of assume like TCU has always been good. Well, they weren't always good, but now they are. And you guys have been trending obviously in the right direction for, for a while now too, because when I was at UMBC, 
you guys were always typically a lot better than us. You had a lot better athletes, a lot better facilities than we did. Um, but you guys weren't a powerhouse. Like we could beat you, you know what I mean? But there's these yeah. other schools that we wouldn't roll up and expect to beat. But you guys yeah. were like within the realm. I mean, you put it in perspective, like it all starts with recruiting, right? Like you can't win without good players. I don't care what anybody says. Like you have to have good players to win. This game is all about the players. <clears throat> when I played, and I think when you're there, we were compute, we were recruiting against UMBC, Towson, uh, those types of schools. So our first step was to elevate our stature per se and say, hey, let's not be in competition with those schools. No offense to them. You know what I mean? They can mm -hmm. beat anybody on any day. I'm just saying that, like, we needed to rise to the point where we started, hey, we need to be on the northeast spectrum of we need to be recruiting against these schools and be looked at the same. And then, yeah. you know, once we got there, it's now to the point where, you know, we're only losing out to, you know, Virginia's, the Carolinas, the Clemson, the Vanderbilt, and that's where you want to be because they're competing yeah. against each other. So just to get it to that point in recruiting where you're looked at like that is super important because you guys know just with today's landscape and how early recruiting is, even though I hate it, um, that's important <laughs> because you don't want to be disregarded right off the bat or not respected um, when you're trying to get in on a recruit. <clears throat> yeah. So yeah, what, 12, what 12 year olds do you guys have in the pipeline right now? <laughs> I was just going to say <laughs> what 20, what 2044 do you have? No. I mean, <laughs> how just, early do you guys, uh, I mean, I guess how early do you start identifying guys? Are you looking at guys that are, you know, the 2020 class is graduating now. Are you looking at 2023s yet? Are you still on 2022s? Are you still signing 21s? Like where, where do you guys kind of fall as, you know, what you're looking for and, and how early you'll start identifying some of these guys? Well, here, here's the thing, man. Like we're, you never stop recruiting just because of the draft. Like we, you know, the last couple of years we got crushed by the high school draft and that, that really hurts your, your roster in college. So, you know, you're never, I, I don't think you're ever done because depending on what time it is, you can add someone. But to answer your question of the trend, yes, we're on 22 and 23. Uh, what we try to do in the recruiting process is a little different. Like we're not just going to say, hey, this guy's ranked on this site and he's in state, so we, we need to offer him. That's not how we do things. We, we, try to, yeah. we try to slow it down a little bit and identify if a guy is ranked highly and he's drinking the Kool-Aid per se and just, just wants to – have the name or you, you get that feel on the phone pretty early, pretty easy if they're kind of bought in. Um, and we give homework assignments to guys. So to, to know that they're engaged, uh, to understand like, Hey, do they care? Do they not? What's their character? So, yeah. Um, yeah. But I, but we take pride on our classes are, are small. You won't see us having 10, 15, 20 guys in a class. Like we have three position players in 2020. We have six and 21 we have only three and 22 and we have just got our first one last week in, in 23. So we're not just getting out there to get out there because of rankings and, and to get ahead of it. We want, we want good players cause they need to be talented, but they got to fit in the mold of character wise um, because we're going to, we're going to be hard on them and they need to know what to expect. What do you, so for those listening, uh, obviously we're here with Matt Swope, assistant coach and recruiting coordinator for University of Maryland. Um, and Matt and I spoke on the phone, I guess it was two-ish years ago, two or, two or three, right? Because I had a recruit um, in my academy who was getting looked at by some really big national schools, and he was very highly ranked in perfect game, um, you know, throwing like 
96 from the outfield, running a 6.7, um, you know, m- low to mid-90s uh, exit speed, very athletic, just, I mean, all the tools, really. And he went out to your camp. You know, we talked about him a bunch and wasn't really a fit. And he was, a, I guess he was a sophomore or maybe, yeah, just finished his freshman year. I think he was in the sophomore summer, I think, when he came out to see you. Um, but you know, he had all the tools where if you're going to sign a guy early, you'd be like, wow, look what this guy can do. He can run, he can hit, he can throw like a, like a minor league veteran. Um, but it still wasn't a fit for you guys. So without getting into him specifically, but just like that was enlightening to me because it reminds me that there's, there's coaches out there like yourself who aren't just looking for a human being with tools. You want an actual baseball player. And at that point, his development, he wasn't a great, baseball player he could throw and hit the crap out of the ball when he hit it you know or you know whatever um but can, can you speak a little bit of that and, and my question i think when we talked back in the day was what does a 2023 what does a freshman recruit who signs with the division one program what do they look like because if you're really skilled if you're a really good baseball player you maybe don't have those crazy raw abilities yet and if you have those crazy raw abilities maybe you um like maybe you can put it together but maybe you can't so like do you take the guy with a ton of raw skills or do you are you like what does a 2023 look like i guess what i'm getting at well i think it's a combination of things right like this is a crapshoot that's why there's so many there's so much parity in college baseball if i was getting recruited as a freshman or sophomore i wouldn't i wouldn't be recruited right now i mean if i I was skinny i was short like that's just the Mm -hmm. way it is and there's no offense to that there's going to be late bloomers and that's what makes this game great you know what i mean so i you know I think that's a good thing for the sport. Um, at the same time, you know, I think it's just a trend, right? So we, we do this early because the pressure, um, there's money in college baseball now, there's pressure to win. There's all these different things that kind of go into that, which is why it's trended towards that. And I hope they change it, to be honest. Yeah. Um, but, I, but I think it's a combination. <clears throat> you know, do you know the kid? And what I mean by that is, has he been to camp? Uh, do you have a good relationship with his coaches that you can trust that's always been honest with you? Uh, certain projections, like, for instance, you know, I don't, I don't care about bat speed. I don't care about some of those things. It's more about, you know, how does he move? Uh, you know, is he athletic? Does he fit for this position? I, I think those are things that you can hopefully project, but th- th- there's no exact science to it. So I can't give you what is a 23 look like compared to this guy. Um, I just know it's like kind of as a whole, as a coach, you know, we're looking at it kind of like a puzzle, right? Or, or, you know, it's like you're trying to fit pieces for different years. So, you know, the guy may not be a fit because simply just because a kid's good in the, in the DMV or in the area, doesn't mean I can add him. Like if I, if yeah. I just gave, you know, 55% to a shortstop that's in Maryland the previous year, I can't go put another shortstop on the same money. I don't care who he is. I don't care if he's a rod. Um, Actually, I would probably find a room for you. You'd find a room for a Yeah. yeah. <laughs> but, uh, I mean, that's just kind of how it goes. So, you know, it's not – some will coaches and, and people will take offense to that. But we have 11.7 scholarships for 27 guys. So, it's it's just hard. It's almost like a puzzle and a budget. And you just kind of have to fill that. Um, and I know I didn't directly answer your question. It's simply a combination of character, projection – and and athletic skills that's what it is okay okay can you can you just uh, talk a little bit more because i don't think kids hear it enough about being actually good on the field as opposed to 
sending a 30-minute clip to a coach that says your exit velocity is 96. You know, I don't think kids realize 30 that, minutes. You know, That's a long clip. 30 seconds. Velocity. I'm sorry, 30 seconds. Uh, it, kids don't understand, you know, for the most part that if you're not the three hitter or if you're not playing a premium position, you know, it's so, that much harder to go to a, a bigger school. And I, at least in my opinion, you know, if, if you're batting eighth on your high school team or your travel team and you're sending out all these big 10 emails, that's not, you're, you're looking at it the wrong way, in my opinion. I mean, you have to be really on a stack team to, for you to be that low in the lineup. So I don't, can you talk a little bit more about, you know, when you go watch a game, how much is it performance? How much is it, you know, uh, the way they carry themselves, presentation, the whole, you know, the whole recruiting bubble? Well, I, I think it's very rare that I'm just showing up to a field right and I see some guy that's going to catch my eye. I mean, you know, the, the good thing about the internet, you know, is the fact that nobody's really hidden. You're not going to find that really gem that nobody knows about anymore. So, you know, if it's, if it's a summer team, uh, chances are we know the coach. Or if we don't know the coach, we know their high school coach. So, right. and most of these guys have been doing it for a while. So I think, I think it's more about doing your due diligence and, and getting their perception first and, and trying to stay objective and, and say, Hey, you know, when you go see a kid, what is it? Um, I think, you know, what you hit on <clears throat> the baseball acumen is less and less this day, these days, just in general, because the way the system is set up, it, it is kind of setting them up to fail, right? Like, you know, we're testing X of velocity and launch angle, and they don't even know what that means. I mean, it's not a swing. It, it's, a, it's a result. So, you know, I, again, <clears throat> I sound like an old fart when I'm talking about, you know, knowing the game and, and, and the little things. But it's important because when they come in now, the first four months we're basically teaching the game. And, yeah. you know, those are four months in the fall that, that, that could be – huge to, to expedite that development, but we're talking about the littlest of details, you know, whether it's stealing bases or leads or base running or defensive positioning or pre-pitch hop in the infield. Like we're literally talking about things that, you know, should be being taught, but they're not. And I think that's a big part of it. And it's just something that is actually just slowing their development down because it's great if, if the guy has all the tools and you get a bunch of players with tools, but if they don't know how to play the game, you're not going to win. And at the end of the day, I'm a, a fierce competitor and so is everyone on our staff. So if you don't come in to do something, whether it's ping pong or basketball or anything that we're doing to win, you will not play here, period. Well, I remember I, I caught a game from you guys uh, early this season before the season got banged. Um, and my remarks and the remarks of one of the scouts I was sitting with was you guys were very organized and compared to the other team, you guys were much more physical and and you typically see that. So I watched my, my alma mater play Mizzou a couple years ago and there was just a difference in just physicality. And I mean, my alma mater, they do a great job. UMBC is doing awesome. They're trending in the right direction, but there was just a difference in the size and just the physicality of the athletes as you go up in tiers. Can you speak to the, can you speak to that? Because I, because for me, it seems like it's it's definitely where you get to the 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 biggest state school, like University of Maryland, University of Florida, University of Virginia. That's where the biggest athletes, the strongest, the most naturally gifted kids, 
just from an athletic standpoint, go to school if they can. So do you typically see that as you kind of go from the low D1, mid D1 to big D1, where you really see a difference in just the athlete in general? Yeah, well, I mean, first of all, I think there's something in the food these days because I don't know, man, athletes are bigger, stronger. (laughs) Oh, they for sure are. It's honestly, it's unbelievable. But yeah, I I think what you see with the early recruiting, right? You know, if, if guys are on 22s and 23s, they're not recruiting those guys if they're five five right now. So I think just the the nature of the physical stature of what they would be at that age kind of goes into the projection a little bit, right? So what we're talking about is is like those guys probably are the most physically gifted at that point and they keep progressing. So it, it's the ones that either late bloomers are kind of just a little bit undersized or there's something not quite there till their junior and senior year where um, there's there's kind of slim pickings left at school. So I think that's more just the early projection. And obviously, look, I mean, anybody can walk into a room and say, hey, that's LeBron James at his age and know he's the, he's the best player by his physical stature. So, yeah. you know, there, sometimes there's just the athletes are, are, are like that early. But, you know, I, we try to stay, you know, open-minded, man. We've, we've had, you know, Brandon Lau is not your prototypical guy. And, he, you know, he should have been the American League Rookie of the Year last year for the Rays, and he was – you know, five ten for us and played second base and raked and, you know, look where he's at now. He's in the big leagues. Um, Nick Dunn's another guy that right after him was, was five, nine, um, all big 10 performer. And it's in high a right now. So uh, I try to stay open-minded because I think they come in all shapes and sizes like Altuve and Dustin Pedroia. And uh, just because someone's six, three or six, four doesn't, doesn't mean they're going to be a good baseball player. Yeah. Yeah. So can you touch on it too? Is, you know, what's the weight program look like for a division one school at Maryland? You know, how often are you guys in the weight room? How often are you doing speed stuff? I mean, I can remember being at, I went to Northern Illinois and we were, you know, Monday, Wednesday, Friday, 6am lifting and Tuesday, Thursday, we had conditioning. So it's, you know, it's, it was five days a week and most guys were doing six. Yeah. First of all, Northern Illinois broke my heart. Uh, And uh, I remember, they beat the Terps, man, in one of our best years. I, th- I don't know if it was 2000 or 2001. It may have been 02, actually. For um, football? Yeah, you guys beat us, man. When we were, we ended up being like 11 and 2. So um, I remember everything when it comes to that. But <laughs> um, yeah, I think it's a lot of times with that, man, it's a reflection of your staff. And, and our entire staff has always been completely bought in on the strength and conditioning side. We have two full time nutritionists so that sit down with our players the first week they're there. And this all comes back to education. If the player doesn't know, you can't expect them to just do it because they're a good player. So we spend a lot of time with the strength and conditioning, the nutrition, the speed work. And I think that has to be reflected in everything you do. It can't just be like, this is your lift time. You know, the coaches need to be in there. The coaches need to be monitoring that. They need to have a great relationship with their strength and conditioning coach. So uh, the weight programs in the fall, we're, we're in there, you know, four days a week. You know, we're doing speed days on the other days. Um, in the spring, we're trying to build up and then maintain that strength a little bit and keep guys healthy. So I think uh, Will Franco has is, is, is done a great job with us. He's our strength coach. Yep, and I follow him on Twitter. Yeah. He, he, he really wants to learn, and that's why we have a good relationship because, you know, <clears throat> I think the next wave in baseball is going to be marrying the strength and conditioning and, and, and specific to the position, whether it's a hitter or a pitcher, because what you're finding in most strength and conditioning coaches is they're all trained the same way. They're, they're trained in a blanket 
uh, strength and conditioning environment from the NSCA as a CSCS or whatever it may be. And they're applying it to whatever sport they end up working with. Well, you know, baseball is a complex, uh, very dynamic sport, very different for pitchers and hitters. So, mm-hmm. you know, we need to find and bridge that gap where, you know, a strength coach may be working on, you know, internal, external rotation, but internal rotation doesn't really matter in baseball. You know, external rotation does. Or a movement um, that's going to apply in the, in the, to actually hitting, you know, where we may be in him a disservice where we're speeding his engine up for maybe a front side move or something like that because the guy just doesn't understand. So I think we're, we take a lot of time and detail trying to develop our players through that, but actually making it, you know, applicable to the field, not just, Hey, this guy's getting stronger, bigger, and faster. Gotcha. Yeah. And, and it's funny you mentioned the CSCS. I mean, speaking from experience, cause I was a strength coach, I'm still certified. I'm just not act- actively, uh, you know, I sold my Academy in August, but I was asked once in my private practice in my academy if I was certified at all. And I can tell you right now that any of those certifications, they have just so little real world application. It's, 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 it's sad. And I did a bunch of internships when I was younger with uh, Nick Tuminell, which Jeff Friday, who was the Raven strength coach with a bunch of other people. I had a great strength coach in college that I was just like a, a bother to him just in his weight room all the time. And you're right that a lot of the book learning in the strength and conditioning world is very, just theoretical and just doesn't have strong application until you're in it actually working with athletes. It's kind of like, okay, you know, it just, and that's, I think, I think that's the thing with a lot of stuff. There's a lot of trainers with three certifications. It's like, well, does this really tell us anything about what you know? And if you can apply this to baseball players and I don't think baseball players are, they're not rocket science as far as what they need because they need, and you'd probably agree that they need 80% of what every other athlete needs. It's that last 20%. That's arm care. That's the unique flexibility, the unique mobility, like the different, you know, so much rotational stuff and balancing out the body where you can, stuff like that. But um, I think you're right. I think it's still a little bit behind the curve, especially at the amateur levels. There's a lot of great private facilities now, which is awesome. So I think that's probably, are you, I'll ask you in a sec. I think that's, you're probably seeing that now, but I think in high school, there's, it's still a struggle where it's still the football program. I know there's a lot of high school still doing bigger, faster, stronger, which is like, you know, it's not 1985 anymore, you know, but do you see, yeah. do you see the private practices, the, the sports performance facilities impacting players that you're recruiting, like in a, in a positive way? Yeah. What I, what I think you've seen in the last probably more three years is these, you know, when the, the baseball facilities start opening up, it was. Right. So they were given pitching and hitting lessons and, you know, then it got into, you know, maybe a little bit bigger facility where they had a half field and they were doing some other things to where now recently they're starting to have in-house weight rooms and strength and conditioning people or, or people that, you know, are biomechanists or, or, or have some anatomy breakdown. So I think these facilities are doing a better job because they're, they're doing it all together. And mm-hmm. I think, you know, obviously that's very tough, right? Because it takes money. Uh, I mean, we're, you know, even at the highest levels, we deal with that. So I think the education is getting out there, but the people that understand all the dynamics of that, it's still very few and far between. Um, and I think you'll see in the next, you know, whether it be five or 10 years, that's really going to change. I mean, even, even stuff like Proteus where, uh, you know, it's, it was in the MVP machine. It's a, it's a good baseball book if people haven't read it. And it's, it's a rehab machine that's, it only deals with like concentric movements, which is, is less on your body and all that. Like you're going to see 
tech and all these things blow up here in the next five, 10 years, where it's going to give you the answer. It's going to tell you how much stress is going to be on the body, what pitchers should do and all that. So I think that, you know, that's kind of probably the next wave is, is, is more tech and, and more things, how to take care of the body. Yeah. What are you guys doing to prevent injuries in your pitchers? Well, that's a good question because I'm a hitting coach, but uh, um, no, but you seem like you have a yeah, you have a good yeah. hand no, yeah. and everything's going on. Yeah, I mean, I, I think these days, like what's what's come to to light the most, even in, in other sports, is is load management, right? Uh, I think the load management piece is is big. Uh, some guys can throw every day, some guys can't. Some guys pitch a lot of innings in the summer, some don't. Some guys pitch a lot of innings in the fall, some don't. So. I think it's individual, you know, to, to them, but, you know, we're using every possible, you know, tool we can, whether it's the weight room, whether it's prehab stuff, um, you know, the, the band program beforehand and Corey could probably speak a lot more to it, but uh, I know they spend a lot of time on, on those specific things uh, to make sure that they're staying healthy. Uh, but I think we're, again, it goes back to what I said about the player individually you have to learn kind of what they do and, 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 and mm-hmm. how their body works before you can just put one blanket prehab type of routine together, one, one yeah. band routine together. I think it's different for everybody. Yeah. I'm sure that's becoming a challenge um, trying to individualize because I think that's becoming the norm. And I've heard that from so many different people that even in pro ball, it's becoming more the norm that we're going to let you, be more of yourself and try to figure out what's best for you rather than just everyone in the organization. Now, obviously there's, you know, a lot of give and take. Um, so we I, think cl- pro, I think in pro ball, just to speak on that, like when I played or, and even now I see the weight program, they're, they're just so scared to hurt somebody the the, the, the weight off season weight programs and the things that are happening they're they're just so scared to hurt. Somebody. There there's, there's not the advancement in that at that level there should be. You know, you, you read about Trevor Bauer because he's a psycho and what he does at driveline and other places. But, you know, <clears throat> otherwise you're getting a weight program and you're looking at it like, what? Like I was doing this in like ninth grade. You know what I yep. mean? This isn't, And it's mm-hmm. all because of, you know, I know there's a lot of money involved in baseball, trust me. But they're going back to their colleges or wherever and they're absolutely getting after it, you know, so – even at the pro level, it's just, it's just not where it needs to be as far as, you know, marrying those two together. So we'll see what happens. Yeah, that's a good point. No one, no one talks about when you, when you go away for the, you know, you have your exit meeting end of the season with the strength guy and he gives you the packet and you look at it and it says three days a week for 20 minutes working out or, uh, you know, and a lot of it too, in my opinion, is that a lot of these guys, you know, that aren't from the U S have never been introduced to the weight room. Like they have no idea what it is. And to give those guys a full on, you know, a full on weight program, six, five, six days a week that maybe a college, a four year college guy would have had. That's it. You know, even to me, it sounds absurd. Like these guys are going to have no idea what some of these exercises are, even if they're paying attention, you know, even if they're really diligent during the season, I mean, there's a language barrier. There's there's a, an equipment issue. You know, some of these guys come from very poor parts of the world. They're not working with, uh, you know, that's, it's kind of like what you were experiencing now in the U S you know, you're on lockdown you're trying to figure out how to work out in your basement with limited resources. That's pretty much the life for some of these guys. So I don't think, you know, those, those weight programs, I can remember getting them and just tossing them. It's like, this is, this is my warm up. 
in pro, you know, for, for my normal off season. Yeah. And I, and I can't speak to every organization. They're trying to do good things. And I'm sure there's some really good people out there and, you know, there's a lot of, a lot of stuff going on, but you're exactly right. Like, you know, we're, we, we give a program right now during the coronavirus to every single one of our kids. It's different based off the equipment they have in their basement or what they have access to. So why would it be any different with a guy that could earn $300 million in a contract at the next level? You know what I mean? So, and and maybe they're doing that now, you know, so I don't want to speak too early on it, but you know, that's the type of detail. And what I still think is great about college baseball is that very detailed, intricate development on many different levels to, to almost like aid major league baseball by the time they get drafted because they're so far advanced emotionally and physically. Yeah. Yeah. And then we, you know, I keep in touch with some of these strength guys that we had and these guys are great guys. They know a lot and they, they understand that it's like, look, this isn't what's going to get you to the next level. This is just to, this is to give you somewhat of a base to keep you active, not to get hurt, not to get hurt. And then, you, you touched on something a little bit, you know, college baseball is a segue to professional baseball. Like you're giving these guys up. Um, so that's sparks a question for me. How much do you guys like to have for, you know, guys, seniors out of high school, as opposed to maybe two year guys at junior college, you know, we, I, I preach junior college a lot to my guys. It's like a good development, uh, you know, somewhere you can go play right away. You know, where do you guys fall? Are you recruiting junior college heavy? Or are you recruiting it for a need? You know, do you, you know, how, how active are you in the junior college recruiting? Well, I, I think, you know, when it comes when I'm recruiting high school guys, right, I, we try to invest in our guys and develop them. And what I mean by that is, hey, if a kid comes in and he struggles his freshman year, I'm not just going to immediately go to JUCO to try to fill that. You know what I mean? So we, we've never really been huge on the JUCO. We'll fill a need uh, based off the draft or something that's lost. I think it's a good tool like that. And, and I don't have anything against – people that are JUCO heavy, but Maryland's a top 15 public school in the country. And it's, it's a very, very high academic school now. So, you know, we, we try to, and I think that gives us an edge when we recruit, right? When we only have three players in a class, you know, it's like, Hey man, we're investing in you. We're going to develop you. And it's up to you to kind of take the bull by the horn. So you have to use JUCO with the draft. um, But we, we use it more to fill needs um, than, than just like a, a, a Band-Aid for everything else. I think it's a great option for several players, depending on your situation. And especially right now, there's going to have to be some guys that with the roster limits the next couple years in Division One baseball that, that really are just going to have to kind of bet on themselves um, and just kind of grind through it. So I think it's a great option, it, you know, just for us. We, we try to invest in the guys and keep that culture and camaraderie for guys that are through the program as many years as we can have them. Gotcha. So if you're just tuning in, we're here with Matt Swope of the University of Maryland. Uh, if you're on Twitter or YouTube, you can uh, work. I'm monitoring the live chat. So if you have a question, definitely punch it in and we'll, we'll ask Matt here. So I do have one for you, um, Matt. It's about foreign recruiting. So it seems like Nelson is a, a pretty smart guy. He, he says, if two kids similar level of capabilities, one has a much higher SAT score, but it's from overseas. Um, any preference between the domestic kid and foreign kid? Obviously, I'm sure that's a lot harder to recruit overseas. So I'll add to this question: Are you guys doing any foreign recruiting, and what are the challenges in recruiting a player from outside the U.S.? Well, I mean, first of all, it's it always comes down to finances, right? So even in the, domestically, you have in-state tuition and out-of-state tuition. Okay, so. Uh, that's a big part of it. If a, if a guy's foreign, 
depending on where he's from, like I'm recruiting a candidate kid right now. What, what's the government subsidy for that? Is there a program that he can get financial aid for uh, in the United States? So it's, it's a very difficult, intricate system because it's state by state and it's okay. also country by country. So yes, the, the, we, we've recruited foreign players. Um, it's not as likely, especially in the warmer countries because they just get drafted, you know, but we, we've had a kid from Vancouver a couple years ago that was all Big Ten. I was on the phone with a Canadian kid yesterday, actually, uh, 2022. So we do it. it it's just not, not as likely just because, you know, if you think about it in terms of the United States, where my footprint's pretty much from Maryland up to New York to Connecticut, and we'll get some Boston guys and stuff like that, right? You know, that's my footprint. I don't even really recruit in Virginia because we don't have border tuition, and there's 10 Division One schools in, mm. in Virginia. Gotcha. That makes sense. It's $55,000 to go to Maryland out of state. So, um, I think it's a case by case basis, but yes, we'll, we'll recruit. We're always trying to find the best players. So whatever it takes. Yeah. Is it, is it tough? Cause I have one example that there's a kid, um, awesome, like awesome human being, like the kind of kid you'd want on your program, no matter what program you are. Um, he's from the Dominican Republic and he was going to an American, um, high school. And it was tough because that was his second language try, trying to pass his classes in a good American, um, private school. So, I mean, you can imagine how hard that, like if I tried to pass, you know, a good high school in Spanish, like whether you're a really intelligent or average intelligence can be super hard. So he, he passed his classes, but it was difficult. Um, and he's at a, he's at an American Juco right now. Um, but one of the challenges that he talked about, and, and he's an amazing story. He's going to be successful. I hope he's listening. He's probably not, but great, great human being. But he comes from the Dominican Republic where he knew he wasn't going to get signed at 16 as a position player, right? He just missed that window. So at that point it's either, I'm done with baseball essentially, um, which is which is sad down there because so many of those kids at 15, 16, 17 are so good, could easily play Division One baseball and keep their career going, but they don't have that access because a lot for that a lot of them the academics aren't there. Like a lot of those kids aren't going to school on a regular basis, they wouldn't be able to hack it in America. But he's smart enough. So anyway, he came over, um, passed his high school, got his diploma, is in junior college. Um, but have you guys had, any, and obviously you, you explained your footprint's a lot smaller, but have you heard much about Division One baseball recruiting from any of these Latin countries, or is that a, is it is it kind of off limits because of the ac- academic side of it? Yeah, I think that that's just that's just kind of common sense, man. It's just like what you hit the nail on the head. Like if I went to a Spanish speaking country or you know something like that, I would struggle immensely. It doesn't matter how smart I am. So yeah, I, I think you know what the the major league baseball does do a good job with that. They're, they have these academies in other countries where they're, they're not only trying to, you know, give them a place to play baseball, but educate them as well. It, it may not be specifically in English, but I think that's helping development. Now, if the college model went to that, where we had that type of maybe segue into that, it would help. But I think what you're always going to find with the language barrier is when something's hard, it adds stress. And college kids are so stressed as it is, you know, you add that pressure on, you know, from a a foreign kid that maybe not be his first language. um, It it just going to probably cause a lot more problems. So, you know, I think the model right now that they have through major league baseball has proven to develop really good players. And, you know, I know that they're doing a better job educating them, you know, with classes and stuff like that and integrate them into, 
kind of our society when they get here. Um, but it's just such a much more difficult thing for a college because colleges don't care about baseball. <laughs> I mean, yeah. They're, yeah. they're institutions of higher learning. That's what they are. So, you know, the, the, you know, these are people that have worked their entire lives just to try to get into Maryland that sometimes don't. So yeah. I think, you know, you, you just got to keep that in mind when we're talking about like the, the nuances and spe- specifics of baseball. Yeah. And the, the foreign recruiting is interesting. Obviously the, the, common example is Canada, right? Everybody speaks English, it's open border, you know, and then to an extent, Puerto Rico, where it's U.S. territory, some of these kids, um, you know, they learn English, they can go to college in the U.S. and then no no issues. You know, I played overseas in the Czech, and I can remember having a kid on the team who was a senior in high school asking me about junior college in the U.S. You know, he sent out some emails, I think, and he had a little bit of interest, and he was by far the best prep player on the team and this is the professional league in the check there's really no it just you know we had a guy in a team that was 17 we had a guy in a team that was 37 um so he's playing in the highest league and I think the the toughest thing for him was to try and for me to try to one communicate because English was his third language actually but two to explain to him you know he's talking about a junior college in Arizona that level of baseball at junior college in Arizona is so far past the league that I was in in the Czech, you know, and that was their top league and considered mm-hmm. the number, th- the number three league in the, in Europe. And I would, you know, I could take a junior college team from anywhere and put them in that league. And it would be a, you know, it would be where uh, they'd run through it. They would have no issues running through that league, you know, talent wise. So to explain to him, you know, and this is just junior college and not, not to say it's bad level, but, if you want to go to a Maryland or a division one school, I mean, there's, it's going to be so difficult to gauge your talent as a, you know, you're sending tape, you're sending video. It's yeah, only really so no much idea. you can do. Mm-hmm. There's so much you can do from, you know, this is from the European side. So I, you know, to, I'm not sure where this question came from, what part of the world, but if he's in Europe or if he's following from somewhere other than maybe Canada, that, that difference in talent level of baseball is, is significant. And I don't think they, they understand yeah. how much of a jump it would be to actually go to a Maryland or go to a, a division one school in the U S yeah. yeah I, think, I think that's where the, the world baseball classic comes into play a little bit where, you know, it's gotten exposure to different countries and, you know, people are seeing things on, on a, on a huge scale like that, where they're like, wow, okay, maybe I didn't see the gap in talent based off the country. So hopefully that'll bring some awareness to that and continue to grow the game because we, we've seen over time, you know, especially in Europe or some other places, there's it, it's pretty untapped right now. Um, so I think that's the one good thing about the World Baseball Classic, and I'll leave that up to Major League Baseball to keep growing the game. <laughs> yeah, World yeah. Baseball Classic is interesting because it's a little misleading when you look at a team like like Team Israel is in the Olympics, and I have friends that are on that team, and most of them are Americans. They're, it's kind of silly. Not, if not yeah. all of them, you know, not, I don't know any of them that live in Israel. You know, Team Italy has Anthony Rizzo, has, has all these – guys that are americans you know well, not, the, the irish team just like a bunch of dudes from boston apparently <laughs> well yes yeah, so it's you know it's it's tough to you know, it's it's a little misleading when you've got some of these teams competing in the international competitions but they're just of americans with different backgrounds yeah yeah, yeah. which that's funny that you mentioned that because it handicaps some countries that don't do that so i last april i was in turkey teaching baseball for a month which is a, was a fascinating experience, but they, they kind of complained. They're like, we don't use, they want to compete in the world baseball classic in the future, but they're currently uh, like, 
I mean, you can't even, it's hard to they're, even fathom far how far behind. behind. I mean, they're far behind. They get waxed by a good 13U team in America. I mean, that's just unfortunately how it would be just with the baseball movements. I mean, it's so hard to teach. There's so many, we're not going to get that down this rabbit hole, I don't think, but there's baseball is really complex if you don't have people teaching it who played the game their whole life. Even the things like when I was telling the guys, hey, go warm up in left field, they're in an amorphous blob throwing the ball 20 feet to each other, like playing patty cake. And you look at that and you're like, what are you doing? But there's no reason anyone would know differently unless they grew up in the game. There's so much stuff you accumulate every year from when you're six, seven, eight, nine, ten that you don't even think about. Like I had to teach them how to go take ground balls between innings, you know, where you stand in the field, like second baseman, we're standing on second base because why wouldn't you, right? It's nothing in baseball, all the little things, <laughs> none of it's sense. common sense. No, yeah. not at all. And so when you talk about countries who don't have a baseball background and they don't have baseball guys to teach it from that standpoint, they're just like impossibly far behind. I mean, if you put a team like that in the world baseball classic against, you know, Venezuela or, you know, Puerto Rico, the game wouldn't end. I mean, they wouldn't be able to record 27 outs, I don't think. And they wouldn't be able to get a hit. It's just like, there's so, such disparity and there's no fixing it because no one's translating baseball books into Turkish, I'm not translating baseball books into, you know, Russian. So there's just like, there's no clear um, way to bat it. But, but I think you, you hit it right, Bobby, where it's like, it's hard to compare the levels and have any idea what you're in, in store for. And I think for you, Matt, if you're recruiting a foreign player, you look like you had some tools you wouldn't necessarily know if he has any baseball IQ. Like if he really knows how fast division, because division one baseball is very, very fast. I mean, you probably get American kids who don't realize how fast the game is at that level, right? No, that's that's the kind of stuff we were talking about earlier, right? Where the first four months, you know, in, in the fall, we're kind of just teaching, right? Like mm -hmm. they, they went and played all these different tournaments. And yes, they're playing at a high level. They're seeing good baseball players. But all of a sudden now, you know, you're playing versus teams and guys that, you know, one little move on the mound, you can be exposed into two quick stolen bases and a run, you know, yeah. or, or, you know, sign systems for pitchers or positioning with guys, um, you know, certain leads, certain, all these different things that they've never had to deal with in their entire life. All of a sudden it's like, holy moly. Um, I had no idea that, that, that there was this much that went into a game, let alone the spring with like uh, scouting reports and all that stuff. So, yeah. Um, it's definitely a huge learning curve, especially for today's players, just because, you know, they're just they're out there competing at a high level in showcases. But, you know, at the same time, there's not the development there was with the Babe Ruth and the Legion teams because you played with guys for 10 straight years. You knew how they played. You knew where they were going to be. Um, and you had all these little nuances of rivalries. And I think at the highest level with the best organizations, they're trying to win a national championship and you'll see that high competition. But for the most part, it's just sometimes it gets a little bit watered down and, and, and guys just aren't as educated about the game. Yeah, the yeah. speed of the game and uh, the biz biggest example I have personally where it, it stuck out to me was in pro ball. You know, I was I came up with the Orioles. I had, you know, Machado, Scope, a lot of big leaguers on the team. And I can remember – being on the same team as as Machado his first year and he's an 18 year old kid and he comes in and just watching him, it's like this kid knew what professional baseball was going in like he came up through that team USA system like he's just so far past where any high school senior is and can you can expect him to be and that's yeah. I mean that's part of the prospects you know that's part of the 
the status of him being, you know, obviously the $300 million player that he is, and he's great big leaguer and all that. But his grooming from the time, I'm sure, when he was identified as a young player in Florida to some of the seniors, like the seniors that I have, we've got kids, I run a youth program, and we've got kids going to Big Ten schools and Division One schools. And some of these kids, I think, are really good baseball players. And then I think, man, if I threw those kids in low A ball right now, like they'd ha- they would struggle just to adapt to what is going on around them. Let not even not even on the field, just in the locker room, just everything that's going on. They have no, you know. And I think that you know, me and the guys that I have do a good job, and we all have pro backgrounds. They'd have no clue. Like I couldn't put this kid, some of these kids in you know, the Sally league and, and expect them to have any clue how to just get to the locker room and what they should be doing when they get there. They'd and go, look they go in the front door probably. No, they'd go, they'd be waiting at the gates, waiting for the ticket guy to let them in. So it's the, the, the grooming that some of these kids have. And then you get to the foreign players where it's base, it's baseball 24 seven for these guys. So it's, they're, they're basically professionals when they're 14 years old. It's yeah. so much different. Well, I think that's a big part, like just to wrap the college in with it. Like, that's why we do draft education. You know, we go to the, the prospect's house as, as a junior and senior in high school and, and really break that down, right? And, and you, know, you know, we'll even work with, the, with agents per se where we have relationships with them because the more we, we can educate the kids and be transparent about the process, the better it's going to be for them. So, you know, what I mean by that is, you know, if a kid's going to get $1.5 million, I'm going to pat him on the back and say, that's life-changing money. You just got to deal with whatever the circumstance is. But, you know, if he's on the verge of signing for $550,000, but he's immature, uh, he's got a lot of development emotionally to have, uh, those are the guys that are going to wash out in pro baseball within two or three years because they just can't handle all the things that you're talking about. So, again, yeah. we try to get in front of that very early with, with, with draft education, um, and taxes and all the realistic stuff that comes along with life, um, as well as with agents, um, if they may have representation at some point, um, just to have those good relationships. So we're all on the same page to uh, do what's best for the kid. Yeah, yeah Matt, I want to I back up for a minute. Um, and I want to ask, how do you feel about Old Bay as a Maryland person? Mm-hmm. Where, where, what's your status with Old Bay? Well, I put it on everything. <laughs> um no i mean old bay is like you know it's saying i mean i grew up in maryland i'm like the most born and bred like i you see the flag right here on here it says maryland made in my shirt so you mm-hmm. can see behind i got all the helmets and everything else so it's a part of who i am you know i think growing up but it's it's the crabs that we've had and we put it on eggs you put it on sandwiches you you put it on anything so you put it on corn put it on burgers so yep. I'm a big fan. You can, you can even put it on certain drinks as well, which I won't talk about now. But um, now Old Bay is like a a, a staple um, in the state. It's something that uh, is it's in the cabinet for sure. <laughs> yeah. For those of you listening, if you're not from the Maryland area, you probably don't know what Old Bay is, but it's, it comes in this like yellow can. They, they used to have these metal cans. I'm sad they went away from the metal can. I'm sure everyone is. But um, it's a crab seasoning and the Maryland blue crab is a, a – a, I guess it's not, it's unique to the East coast, but it's very unique. It's like a special, it's like our food here in Maryland. Uh, you know, what is it? Uh, football and crab cakes is what Maryland does. But, um, (laughs) so old Bay is one of those beloved seasonings that, yeah, you put on everything. I'm, I, I personally, Matt, I'm sure you've probably done this too, but I mix it with Buffalo sauce and ranch 
It's amazing. It's amazing on chicken. You, you or guys, whatever. Are, you guys are weird. I'll have mm. to try that. Actually. <laughs> yeah, I, I call it comet sauce, named after my sister's dog. But um, okay. there you go. It's it's the way to go. But um, no. So I mean, back to recruiting. We we have one more question. Um, the endorsement rule. I'm actually not familiar with this is, but I'm sure you are. Um, it says the top governing body of the NCAA is a plan to allow endorsements uh, for athletes. So I guess like commercial endorsements. Mm-hmm. Do you know much about that? How do you, where do you fall on it? Yeah, I think that's going to be a slow process for everyone. I think obviously the the basketball players would be first, football second, uh, just by the nature of how big the sport is. So I don't see that coming in a ton to amateur baseball, um, which is funny because, you know, baseball players and a lot of times end up making the most money. Yeah. But I just, I just, it's rare that you're going to get um, like a Mark Pryor or Steven Strasburg, uh, that's going to be so high profile at a young age, like as a freshman or sophomore, that you're going to know you want to invest your money in that guy. Because if you look at baseball as a whole, there's a high percentage, um, I mean, the majority of first rounders that don't even make it to the major leagues. Yeah. So even if you can identify a first rounder in college, to, to, to do those types of things doesn't mean he's going to make it to the big leagues. So I think, I, I don't think you're really going to see that at the, at the baseball level and the amateur wise for NCAA. I think well, did, you'll see it. I think you'll see it with like a Zion Williamson. I, I think you'll see mm-hmm. high profile guys like that possibly. Um, but it, it's not really going to affect our game. Well, do you think it could be something like smaller, like Instagram influencers, like, you know, you got a, a a baseball guy who has a good Instagram account, he's popular, he starts making money off it that way, where I guess the NCAA I mean, is that probably falling in the same scope? Do you know? Well, yeah, that's all, it's all super touchy, you know, I yeah. mean, it's, you know, you can get paid, you know, just like anyone else, as long as it, as long as it's open to that, you can't be paid at the car wash $10 more an hour than someone with your same skill set. Yeah. So gotcha. there's always that fine line that, that the NCAA kind of, as at their discretion. But, you know, I think what you'll see in the next five, 10 years in, in college sports, they just got to continue to evolve. And, yeah. and uh, you know, with everything that they're doing um, and, you know, they're trying to do that with the cost of attendance with, with basketball and football players and certain things like that. But, you know, we should be working with the pro sport arena and how can we do again, what's best for the kids but allow them the profit as well. And, and I know that's a very fine line with, with gambling and education and what normal students are doing, but you know, there's not a hundred thousand people coming to watch somebody take a test too. So, um, you know, if we're going to profit the NCAA, not Maryland, but if NCAA is going to profit as a whole from TV and, and, and we're going to profit from ticket sales and revenue and merchandise, um, you know, I, I think there's got to be an open conversation. What what most people don't know is is that you know, baseball places aren't aren't revenue sports. There, I think there's less than ten college baseball teams in the entire country that actually turn a profit. So yeah, when you're looking at it from a whole, there's people that aren't very educated to just say, hey, they're making tons of money, but it, that's not really the case. So right. you know, again, this this is a higher education institution it's 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 a college to to get a degree and all that so that that's always going to be the main focus um so you have to look at it from the whole scope you can't just pick one narrative and kind of go at it like that you know i think where it's gonna 
where it's going to affect college baseball maybe is with some of these agents that really want to get in touch with these, the high round guys, the, the projected first and second rounders, um, you know, batting gloves, uh, you know, maybe a, a glove here or there, something to some kind of perk to kind of get them at least in the, their foot in the door. Uh, I've got a, I've got a really good friend that runs uh, Jack's batting gloves. So he's always, you know, he's, hitting up a lot of minor league guys, you know, sending gloves out, you know, prep guys will get, uh, you know, buy gloves, put them on their Instagram and he'll you know, repost that stuff. I think there's an opportunity for maybe somebody like that, you know, batting gloves, somebody, a smaller market, maybe apparel, not necessarily somebody given, you know, not necessarily maybe Nike given half a million dollars to a, to like a Zion Williamson to wear their shoes in a, in a NCAA basketball game. But, there might be some money to be made for some of these guys that, that have a potential to be first, second rounders just to get at least maybe some free stuff. Um, yeah. Free stuff is always good. Yeah, just give me free Eggo waffles if I'm a college right, student. You're in the weeds now. I think the, the, one, the one good thing that there is going on now is, is our contracts are better than ever, meaning you know we're, with Rawlings and, and, and Under Armour, these guys are getting more stuff than I've, I could ever imagine. Uh, so – I think you're right. I think that could be a, a, a chance in the summer and certain things, but you know, it's also a good thing sometimes that, you know, we're taking care enough of the players uh, equipment wise to, to provide them to succeed. So it's definitely touch touch with like, you know, here we are, we want free enterprise and business and our, our country's built on some of those founding principles, but at the same time trying to have some compliance and control. So, so things kind of just go to accordance, you know, yeah, yeah, that's fair. Um, yeah, we, we got a, a bunch of international questions today. I think I have a good international audience on YouTube. So thank you guys <laughs> for watching. Um, just not really our wheelhouse today. But I think we're going to try to get big old Pete Caliendo on the show. And he'll have a lot to elaborate on that topic. So I think that'll be good. Um, Matt, one thing um, I wanted to talk a little bit about was how have you seen um, the swing change? So kind of doubling back to the hitting stuff we talked about right at the beginning. Obviously, there's some stuff on the web that you look at that and you're like, that's not a swing that exists in real life. You're like, mm -mm, mm -mm, mm -mm. but then there's also a lot of good hitting content out there. Um, but has the swing changed in your opinion in the last couple of years? And what are some of the good things you see? And what do you see that's probably going to flame out in the next uh, year or two? Well, I, I think you see the interpretation of the swing change. I think there's a lot of people that have agendas and want to find one part of the swing and say, see, that's how everybody should hit. And it fits their narrative. So it's more the interpretation than the swing. Uh, you know, I, I think with, I don't know if something's going to fizzle out, but I can tell you my, my true belief is, is that nobody's the same. You know, uh, there's not one swing for, for everybody. Everybody moves differently. Um, everybody has certain limitations in, in, in how they move. Some guys are loose, some guys are tight, some guys, um, you know, are predisposed to other things. So uh, it, that's, a, that's a very hard question to answer other than I truly believe that every, every hitter is different and they need to be coached to that. Um, I don't think there's, there's one way, which, which a lot of people on Twitter will have you believe. Um, I think if you go back and you study the best hitters that played the game, you'll find a lot of similarities. Um, mm -hmm. You know, and I've talked about that on online and I've posted pictures um, from, from I think hitting from a very, very 
um, specific standpoint is more about how well you stop um, than anything else. I think the bat speed and over rotation and building the engine for front side moves is, is the worst thing that can happen for amateur baseball players. Uh, I think the guys that are the best are, are the trouts and the guys like that, that are super tight movers. They're super efficient. They stop their hips earlier. They scissor, they kick back, they recoil all these different things that are allowing them to trans transfer force into the baseball with direction. Um, it's great. Um, that we're talking about trying to have somebody with 80 mile an hour bat speed, but um, that bat speed is going to be foul about 500 feet. It's not going to be able to be uh, transferred the same way as, as maybe some other things. So we can get into some very dynamic stuff and specific stuff about hitting, but um, I think there's some principles that need to be followed that you can see over the last 30, 40, 50 years more than, hey, there's this one specific swing. Bobby, what's what's going on, man? I want to hear it. Uh, uh, <laughs> happening. I don't I don't disagree with any of that. It's the the what what I always talk about on Twitter is that the baseball is the best piece of data out there. Like if you're hitting the ball, line drives into the gap and your coach is telling you, you know, you you need to change that, that you need to not change that. Like the result we're always shooting for results, right? It's I always I always like to preach like, you know, we don't, we don't talk mechanics in the cage that much. You know, if we're just hitting, it's like, okay, we're, let's, let's hit and let's, let's see what the results say. Let's see what the baseball says. You know, if you're driving line drives and you're, and you're squaring up the ball and you're doing things, you know, you, you have the ability to barrel. Okay. We can adjust off that, but that's, you know, that's the toughest part is to get a kid that or get a player, any level college all the way down. And I work with kids that are really young, like really, really young, five, six years old. Just to get them to barrel to ball is is a is a really difficult skill in itself. So it's like you said earlier, like let's make let's make this simple. You know, I want you to hit a line drive over the infield. Line drive, not a fly ball, not a ground ball. Like the best hits from whenever I was taught to hit, like were always line drives. And I don't even hear the word line drive used that much anymore. Yeah, it's, that's true. You're kind of right. And it makes there. me yeah, like kind of makes you know it makes me sad in a way it's like the purest form of baseball is like let some of these kids let them play let them you know teach them the the nuance of baseball like you kind of back to my thing in in europe when i was playing in europe like i i don't think some of these some of these kids had ever heard the word line drive and what what that meant to uh, you know to application on the field so I agree with every, you know, I follow Matt and I, I follow hitting Twitter and I'll jump in and I'm, I'm basically, you know, I'll, I'll go at some guys and I'll offer some stuff on hitting Twitter. I'm not on it nearly as much as some other people um, other than reading it. Cause I like to see what's being said and there's the high level pattern swing. And then there's the, you know, the biomechanical, you know, guys that are, that are, there's two very far ends of the spectrum, but I never hear the word line drive and I really want to start hearing the word line drive more like, Hey, what are you doing to, you know, to get yourself in a consistent spot to barrel every single time. And it's a, it's a skill. Like there's, we play, we've all played with guys that have that might have the ugliest swing on the team, but for some reason, this guy barrels three or four every game. And it's well, like, I think this, this guy's a, just a, a hitter. He's a good hitter. Yeah. I, I think getting in the specifics of that, like, you know, I don't care if a guy's standing on his head, if he can hit the barrel, like I'm not going to say anything. And that's, that's part right. of when my guys come in, I don't just the first week try to change them. I'm watching them for a month or two. 
Um, I, I think going back to what you said, I think it's important when kids are young to tell them to swing hard and find the barrel. I, I think yes. when, when, they're, when they're young, you can give them an external cue to find the barrel and, and, or an internal cue to just, you know, swing hard. I think that works. Um, you know, what we're talking about specifically with our type of players that does not work at the higher levels. Uh, you have less time, you have, um, you know, better pitching, you have all these things. So what, what, what you're trying to do at the higher levels is, is be more efficient with the, with the limited time that you have. So I think when you're young, you know, having that type of motor skill and, and motor learning stuff is great and it works then. Uh, it just gets a little bit more complicated as we get older and, and more specific. Right. Matt, I got a, I've got a, I'll go ahead, Dan. Nope. Nope. Go do it. Well, I was going to say, I'm going to trans, I'm going to transition because I've got a question here from one of, uh, one of our youth guys He's a high school, uh, actually a dad and his son's a catcher. And he asks, uh, you know, as a catching prospect, is it more important to have good technique behind the plate throwing footwork or would you rather have a really good bat? Um, you know, whether it's hitting for power or hitting for average when you're looking at a, catch, a guy that's a catching prospect for you. Technique. Um, I, think, I think the footwork and the hands, how strong your hands are, and, and those types of things are, are way more important. I think, you know, a lot of times catchers that can hit but can't really catch, you know, end up being put at first base or DH. So I think catcher is one of those positions there, there will always be a need for catchers it's the most dire position on a team uh, because you're literally sometimes one pitch away from having to play. Um, and it's, it's a high risk position. So I would well, tell all that dad to, to focus on the defensive aspect. You, know, you got to work on hitting, but right. You know, there, we're always trying to find catchers, man, always trying to find catchers that have good footwork that can throw and, and have strong hands. Well, when you see, I mean, when you got a kid that can naturally hit, but maybe he's not a great receiver, can't you make him into a pretty good receiver in college? But can you? But it, but does it work the other way around? No. <laughs> I mean, catching man is just so, <laughs> catching. So, yeah. No, I mean catching so unique. You just because. Let me throw that in there. Like, okay, you're not the best receiver. Yes, we can work on it every day. But again, we never talk about the minutia, right? It's like, okay, we just gave him three numbers, and he's on taps or digits or something like that. He then has to see what the coach gave him. He has to process that. He has to give the sign to the pitcher, and then he has to focus. Like, we're not yeah. just talking about, you know, that stuff is very hard to do. You have to process all that, okay, along with you trying to get to be a better receiver, okay? So, you know, those are things that aren't talked about. That's the mental part of the game that is extremely difficult, and catchers need it the most because yeah. they're the ones that are the generals on the field. So, yes, you can improve receiving – in, in, a, in, a, in an environment where structured and, and there's nothing going on, you start throwing stuff in there where people are screaming at you. They got two hits in a row. You called the wrong sign. Uh, you didn't do the right pickoff play. Then, you know, that's when the chaos and everything else ensues. So that's the little part of the game that's tough. Yeah. That kind of goes along with college coaching. I mean, there's people don't realize or the ones that do maybe still don't understand that there's they're probably not a specific catching coach on each, on each staff. You know, there's, you always have a, you have a head coach and whatever his position was, I mean, he's going to know the most about a certain area, whether he's hitting or pitching guy, you have a pitching coach and then you usually have a, a position coach, you know, a, you're a recruiting guy, you're the hitting coach at Maryland. 
and I'm sure you also have to work with the infielders, outfielders, and and the catchers. I mean, there's no. It's not like you've got a guy sitting there like, oh, this guy was a ten-year, you know, big league catcher, and he's going to make this kid a great receiver. It's like sometimes you just have to let them receive and kind of and give them tips along the way. But you really want to get, you know, catching is the one position where it's hard if you don't have a guy on staff to. I feel like maybe develop that guy into a really good catcher. He's got to do a lot on his own. He's got to be, you know, he's got to be really diligent on his own because catching it, like you said, is that, is that niche position where, you know, I played shortstop, so I'm, I'm confident I can teach a first baseman a lot of infield stuff, but catching is a wholly different, a total different ball game. Yeah. That's why, that's why you should come to Maryland because Rob Vaughn was a, was a college catcher and a professional catcher and, you know, he's our head coach. So <laughs> there you go. There you go. We do have that. And then you got me who coach outfielders and infielders and coach Papio. And I think just to add to that, what, what Corey Muscara, our pitching coach is great on. I think the pitching coach has to take some ownership with the catchers. And you don't really see that on the college landscape or pro landscape. They're, they're working with their pitchers, but they also have um, very detailed knowledge on, on a catcher and, and what they should be doing. So I think Corey's done a great job for that um, integrating um, himself in in the recruiting calls with catchers, right? Because he's asking some questions that maybe I wouldn't ask. Um, and I think that's a big part of identifying catchers in the recruiting process is coming from the pitching coach, actually, not just the hitting guys. Right. Matt, um, I and I've asked most of the coaches that have been on the show this question. I'm a very big proponent of letting kids call their own game. Where do you guys fall on Maryland, on that on Maryland? Um, I think it depends. We've had we've had success with both. I think, you know, overall, again, I'm just going to go back to this. Um, kids aren't learning the game early enough, meaning they're not doing it from an early age. They're not doing it on these showcase teams. They're getting pitches called for them. So if that's the case, I can't have a kid who's not very educated come in and that's never done it and call a game. That's 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 not fair to him. I'm setting him up for for, for failure. So I, I think it depends. Like we've had a, a, a catcher, Kevin Martier, that was on our team, uh, some of our best teams. He, he's a Latin kid from New York City. He had super amount of feel. He'd done it all his life, and, and he was the best we've had so far with that. So I think it's circumstantial. I mean, I'd like to see it more. You know, I, I just think we're, we're handcuffing guys because, you know, you're seeing it. I, I've seen it in seven- and eight-year-old games sometimes, not even high school where it's happening. And how do you expect someone to call their own game if they don't know? Now, yes, you can, yeah. you can take the time to, to teach them. But let me tell you, that's the biggest problem I have anyway. I only get eight hours in the offseason with these guys and 20 hours during the fall season for five weeks. So, you know, I'm, I'm trying to cram in every possible second I can um, to make them better players. And, and, and sometimes that, that falls on the back burner and it's tough, but, but we try to do it. Corey spends a lot of time on educating those guys with that as well. That's good. Yeah. And I agree. I think it's, it's weird that it, there's like both, there's arguments both ways on the youth side where they're like, well, they don't know how to do it yet. So we have to do it for them. It's like, but they're, but they're 10, just, you, they don't even throw strikes. They throw like yeah. one pitch. Just let them call it their one random, randomly located pitch. They're not going to hit their spot more than like one out of ten times. Mm -hmm. So just like let them see the – I just think the risk and reward is so valuable as a teaching tool um, where I think you're right. If kids are – if this is a cultural change, which is why I keep bringing this up because I want it to be a cultural change, specifically in the lower parts of baseball, um, then it can hopefully, like you said, kids have more of a feel and more of an idea when they get to, to high school and college baseball. 
Yeah, and it's 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 weird that that's one of those things in baseball. It's like when did that start happening, and like why exactly, and like why is it now the cultural norm? I mean, just like with batting practice, and I want to ask you about batting practice as well. Like we've gotten to these points where like we've just been rutted, I think, in baseball with our traditions, and like the pitch calling in amateur baseball is like a rutted tradition now, and I think it it, it needs to be called into question. Um, and I think batting practices too, just like boop, there you go. Hit that one as far as you can. Like, yeah. so what are you guys doing at Maryland as far as batting practice? Are you reinventing it? Are you changing it? What's happening there? Well, I, you know, again, I think batting practice is is something that's a that's just a feel thing on game day, right? Like, the majority of the days we're not taking batting practice. They'll, they'll come in with me in the cage for a half hour, forty five minutes. We're working specifically um, on something they can improve on, and what I mean is, every one of my guys has an individual program. So they're doing two to three exercises before they go outside to practice for the day that they need to improve on to make them a better player. We're not pigeonholing the entire team to do the same exercise. We're not just doing that. So I think if you put the work in during the week, game day is just eyewash. I mean, it's it's about routines. It's about mental preparation. And what you're finding is big leaguers, a lot of them don't even take BP anymore. So I think it's something that you said is traditional. Um, yeah, just to kind of get the guys ready. But I, I think if you're, if you're challenging them um, throughout the week in practice and making stuff difficult on them, uh, you're going to be more prepared for game day. Um, I'm open to anything. I, I couldn't care less really what people do for BP. I think to each their own. Uh, we've added a constraint in our batting practice called V-Flex, which is um, a circular type of thing that I throw through that is, is tangible to train their vision. So what I'm doing is if it goes through a certain hole, it's going to be a strike, and then I mix in some balls. So, you know, within batting practice, I'm still trying to uh, create some constraint to help their vision um, for their zone discipline. So, I, you know, I guess in a sense, I'm, I'm still trying to get better and have them work on something uh, while they have the freedom to, to stay within the environment of just getting prepared for the game that day. Gotcha. So are you guys throwing, so like, let's go out of batting practice. Let's go back just into your hitting training in general. What are some of the things you do? Are you mixing in lots of speed work? Like they have a, you have a pitching machine where they're seeing speed a lot or like what's kind of your process there? Yeah. I mean, this is, this is always the toughest part with me. Um, I have a love hate relationship with machines. Um, I think everything you should do in hitting um, involves uh, timing and balance. If, if there's, a, there's a, an exercise that you're doing that's going to affect timing um, that's not realistic to the game, you should not be doing it. So just because you can put a machine at 40 feet and make it equal to 90 miles an hour doesn't mean it's going to be good for the player. Uh, he doesn't have a time to an arm action. He doesn't have time to load yeah. properly. So what you're actually doing is you're training him to hit 95 but you're actually speeding his timing and balance and mechanics up and it's going to make him worse. So, you know, I think it's a fine line. I think machines should be between 50 and 60 feet and be realistic. Again, it should have like an arm or someone should get up in a balance point because everything is about timing. I know there's some coaches that don't like machines and don't do them for that specific reason. I think there is some good application for machines but it can't just be, hey, let's make it as hard as possible and close as possible and expect good results. Um, yeah. that, that's just going to make everybody worse. So inside, what we do every day is we, we have a movement-based approach, okay? If I go through a movement-based approach, and whether he's a tight or loose mover, 
and get him to understand his body to be on time with every pitch and balanced, we have a chance for success, period. Okay. And that can come in many different ways. When we go outside for the day, we may have, you know, uh, a, a game where we have two machines where it's fastball, breaking ball, two headed monster, uh, all these different types of things that where when we go outside for the day, we're competing. We're not talking about mechanics. We're not talking about all that. We're simply competing on the field. So they, they kind of have a preconceived notion when they come in with me. That's the time to work on their craft. When they go outside for today or for the day, whatever we're doing, it's just time to compete. But everything from a training standpoint for me is you always have to go back to ask yourself, is this going to help or hurt his timing and balance? If it does not, if it affects that, you shouldn't be doing it, period. How do you feel about really – so you talked a little bit about the the closer distance and the lack of reaction time. Um, obviously, like we look at Little League World Series and, and they're they're posting, you know, 96-mile-per-hour equivalent. Clearly, it's not the same. Can you speak a little bit of diff- about the difference between actual velocity, just like the, the way it affects your eyes, just like the way it affects your timing? Like there's clearly just a visual difference than just reaction time, right? So can you speak a little bit on the difference between actual velocity and reaction time? Wow, you I can get down a rabbit hole in this, but uh yes. I, I think yes, yeah, please. I think it's I a think big misconception. I think <laughs> essentially what I'm talking about with timing is anything that you can see a pitcher or a player can allow his body to move within time is is what I mean by timing. It doesn't just mean to get on time with a fastball. It means he has to have the same movement pattern, whether it's 30 feet away or 60 feet away. So there's nothing wrong with batting practice from 30 feet away. It just has to make sure that it's something where the hitter can move the same way he could at, 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 at 60 feet. So, you know, when we're talking about timing, that's something that's still people are like, oh, I'm confused. Does he mean just get on time with it? It's more about the movement pattern can be the same. Okay. And, and that's why you need that kind of constraint um, where you're seeing the pitcher being able to move or something to that degree. When it comes to vision, um, you know, this is a huge argument. You, you, you're, you do not see spin. So uh, it's just a proven thing. You, you see color and you see space. That, that's what our eyes do. They don't, it doesn't see spin. We, we think we do, but we don't. So I've spent a lot of time on this vision aspect. Um, that's sending electrical impulses. So it's very difficult to explain to people, which is why we use the V flex because it's something that is tangible where I don't have to go down this rabbit hole, what you said. So basically that's why timing is so important is because we want to be down and balanced in time to, to make a better decision. Um, but, uh, the, the reaction time and velocity, your brain doesn't process it like that. It just sees color and space. Okay. Um, yeah. Timing's a tough one. It's tough to, it's tough to kids, especially, you know, at any age and I, even in pro ball, it's like, yeah, it's the, when you're trying to be on time for velocity or just get your timing down or whatever you're doing, like nothing really mimics seeing 90 plus or even, you know, 85 plus off the mound. Like your body reacts a little bit differently. Like, you, you know, the feeling you get, you know, you're tense, whatever, like situation, you know, it's not the same as whether, you know, when a guy's flipping to you underhand or yeah. off the tee or whatever you're doing. So it's like, it's hard to, it's, that's probably the hardest part about, about 
working with hitters is to try and get them into that game feel like with their body in practice or in batting practice or training or whatever. So it's, it's so tough. Like you talk about a rabbit hole. I mean, you could talk about, you know, different, different ways to do that for hours just to get a guy to feel like he's in a game, you know, timing, he's in a game, you know, uh, adrenaline, he's in, you know, where his body's going to move the same, you know, at a 9am practice on a Tuesday at, in the same as a six, you know, six o'clock game on Friday night, opening up in the big 10. But here's, here's the thing that's, that's, that's kind of good. All vision training, so people understand, is simply trying to free up space in your brain. That's all it is to make quicker decisions. That's all it is. So we've done uh, whack-a-mole boards. We've done strobe goggles. Um, we use the V-Flex on the field now because it's tangible. But essentially, all vision training is just trying to free space up in your brain to make quicker and faster decisions. So those are things over time with the V-Flex. Um, you know, when a pitcher is throwing and you're, you're, you're using your gaze to watch them, you know, you're getting an electrical impulse to your brain when the ball's released, okay? When we add the V-flex in there, which is this big circle, that's another electrical impulse that we're sending to the brain that actually tricks the brain, okay? Because just like our bodies, your, your, your vision and your body is going to be, it wants to use the, the least amount of energy to, as possible to, to complete the task. So with vision training, you actually have to trick your brain because it doesn't process stuff like that. So it's a very, very difficult thing to do. Um, and most yep. people have no idea about this stuff. And I've tried to really pay attention and study it and understand implicit training, which is brain-based training, and, and what it actually does. Because people, you can ask 100 baseball players, maybe 50 of them will swear they see spin. And I thought I did too until I just was presented with the actual science of how your brain actually works. But I think – all in all, whether it's vision training or mental training or meditation, which we do, you're trying to free up space in, space in the brain, like you said, because there's so many other external and internal factors that are going on in a game. Yeah, and to, you know, you verbalized what, what something I heard a long time ago, um, and it was a it was referenced to a story by Alex Rodriguez, and someone told me, you know, your brain and a normal person on average is thinking about 2,500 things per second, like going through their mind. And elite athletes and, and you know, high, uh, high performers are somewhere around 800, you know, thoughts per second going through their mind. And, it, you know, 800 sounds like a lot, but it's the way you verbalize it. It's, you know, getting the clutter out of your mind and being able to focus. And, you know, the, the story with Alex Rodriguez is, he did an interview and he said, you know, a hundred times before he went to bed, he would, you know, close his eyes and repeat to himself, I'm the best hitter in the world. I'm the best hitter in the world. And, you know, power, positive thinking, you know, talking things into existence, whatever, you know, meditation, whatever that was for him, it's, it's basically shutting his mind off and just getting, trying to get on some kind of singular focus of I'm a good hitter. Like if I believe it, I can achieve it type deal. And yeah, yeah. just, it, it made a lot of sense. And what you said verbalized, you know, explain that a lot better than, you know, it kind of explained it and uh, put it in a nice package for what I was learned or what was taught, you know, 15 years ago and, you know, 800 thoughts. Like you can't wrap your head around that. You know, how, why is it 800? Why is it, you know, 2,500, whatever the number is. Yeah. I think, I think we could go on, hold on a second. We can go on an extension of that too when it comes to like internal cueing for hitters, right? Like 
we get all these arguments about, you know, Trout told himself to swing down. A-Rod did too. And they show you all this stuff, right? But, you know, nine out of 10 baseball people don't know that your, your brain processes information through your spine. So your brain processes information through your spine when you're standing straight up and you're just rotating like this. Yeah. The, your barrel does seem like it's above, but as soon as you bend over, mm-hmm. you know, that feel that you're telling yourself in, in your head it, to them, they're bending over now. So now they still think the barrel is above it. So, you know, yep. those are just little nuances where, you know, just because someone gives themselves an internal cue, they really think they're doing that. So, um, you know, and that's just a little nuance about how, where your brain processes information through your science, through your spine. Um, and we're kind of pre-programmed like that as, as crawling or walking or stuff like that as kids is, is really getting an understanding why they tell themselves that as their internal cue. You know what I mean? Um, so just little things like that. It's the same type of thing of vision. It's more about the education and what people know than just, okay, no, he doesn't do that in the game. It's not really, it's, there's a lot of things that go into both of those. Gotcha. Can you this is, a go rabbit, into, this is a big rabbit hole. Can you quickly, because I'm sure there's some people out there that don't know the difference. Can you talk about uh, internal versus external cues, what, what, the, what those are and the difference? Yeah, an internal cue would be something maybe to, to say swing down or, um, you know, front foot under the front hip on your forward move. Um, maybe something like that would be your internal cue to get started. Um, an external cue is something saying, Hey, I'm going to, I'm going to hit this pitch off the center field wall. Uh, those, those are differences between an internal and external cue and every player is different. Some people need the one internal cue. I don't think you can have a lot cause you can't hit like that. It may be mm-hmm. one, a player has one internal cue. Um, maybe if it's a hit, he's, he's thinking, you know, I'm going to hit the ball to the right side instead of trying to think about, see it deep. Uh, do this, do that, and then they end up just kind of messing their brain up. So I think it's different for every player. And, again, that's exactly what we just talked about, where a guy may think barrel above the hands. He may think um, drive the ball to the right center gap. You know, everybody's different, and everybody has internal and external cues that they know what what works best for them to get the desired result. Okay. Yeah, that's a good explanation. Um, And for those of you in YouTube, I I posted the uh, the V-Flex device that Matt's talking about um just so if you want to check out what he's talking about it's a I remember seeing that I was at the ABCA this this winter in in Nashville and I saw that thing um and I start stop the chat with them and this is as a just a random side note a lot of companies out there and they're one of them don't explain their products very well and that's kind of why I asked about the internal versus external cues so I was walking by and I'm like hey what is this thing and he gives me this huge piece of paper that had like the most the most tiny text on I'd ever seen and I'm like, yeah. there's no, there's no way if you give this to a dad, he, he like wants to buy your product or he really even is clear on what you're selling. And I wasn't, and I'm, I consider myself reasonably bright and reasonably well-informed. And I'm like, I don't, I don't know what this is or how it helps me or like what even all this means. And I think there, that's a well, big problem in baseball where yeah. there's a lot of tech and it's poorly, and it's poorly explained. Well, think of what you're talking about, right? We're trying to, we're getting scientists and, and, ophthalmologists and those guys in the game. Right. And they're, they're not us. They don't speak our same language. Um, you know, it's essentially, but what it should say, I'm a psycho over owning the zone. I think the, (laughs) the, the the separation between minor league and major league players, a lot of times is, is simply owning the zone and zone discipline. So I'm a psycho over that. So 
you know, I've taken the time to find out the research behind it and why. Um, but, you know, you're right. Like, it may be something that he thinks he's explaining it in, in, in layman's terms, but he really just needs to say, hey, do you want to take your program to another level, um, you know, or do you want to increase your walk rate? Do you want to cut down on strikeouts and only have those mm -hmm. two things on a big sign behind it? You know what I mean? Yeah, for so, sure. Um, I think that's you're running into that with everything. I, I just I found it because I'm, I'm crazy about owning the zone and I've tried a whole bunch of different zone uh, vision products. And it's hard to say that stuff may work, but you don't know how it's tangible on the field. So something like this where I can throw BP at different distances and it's on the field. I know it adds a, an, an additional electrical impulse that does trick your brain. And basically, we're trying to free up space and train our brain to pick up things through space better. That's it. And I know that's very difficult to understand, but at least it's tangible for me on the field to where, hey, worst thing that can happen, it's the same It's the same BP. Nothing's changing. I'm just adding an additional vision constraint to it. Gotcha. Yeah. And if you're watching us out there, I know we're getting a little bit choppy as far as like, I guess, our, one of our Wi-Fi connections. It's one of the hazards of doing these, these live, but I know the audio is still coming through pretty well, so... Appreciate you sticking with us. Um, yeah, I mean, it's it's interesting seeing how baseball's changing, and I know that can be a frustration as you you listen to some people explain. Just like coaches, we're trying to like make a name for ourselves. We're trying to establish what we know, and sometimes it's too long winded and too biomechanical, and it's not really relevant for a coach or a kid to take that and run. I know that's a big thing on, on, on Twitter. It's just tough sometimes to figure out who we're talking to, whether we're talking to a peer in the coaching world who understands when we use technical terms or if it's a dad, you know, a kid, a, a coach, you know, the end user. Yeah. I mean, uh, again, like I said before, like, it's great. There's people way smarter than me in this world, but you know, the only thing I care about is, is acquiring the knowledge and can I apply it to individual kids? That's it. That's all that matters. You know what I mean? Just like I said from the beginning, just because we can measure something doesn't mean it's important. Uh, it, it, it's all about application. And sometimes we're chasing results with data um, instead of just going through the process of what it takes to get better. And, um, you know, that's my job as a coach. And what our job of people that are in the field is, is to really discern that and explain that to people. So uh, one thing, and we're going to probably wrap up here uh, pretty soon. One thing I, I think a lot of people are wondering about college baseball is, is what is going to happen going forward. Do you have any insight? I know there's a ton of stuff up in the air, but like, what do you think? What's your feeling? What can you divulge um, about the, the coronavirus yeah. situation? What's happening? Yeah, well, this, this is a very fluid situation. We're having weekly calls where we're getting information in, you know, we're still trying to get information on some of our seniors. Um, people just think that they got an extra year of eligibility, but there's finances that go on that. There's people that graduate, um, even though they have another year, uh, there's all different types of things that go into that, um, that affect rosters. We, we still have a roster limit, um, but we still have a 2020 class coming in. So all those little details are, are very fluid right now. And it's, it's left a lot of things up in the air and it's tough for people. Um, as far as the schedule goes, I think you're going to see next year. I think you're going to see things change drastically. I think, uh, it's going to be more regionally based type of schedule. Uh, we were supposed to go to at Florida State, at Oregon State uh, next year and, and have a really tough schedule. But, you know, maybe maybe that may not happen now, depending on, you know, can those schools even pay out guarantees? Um, is your institution just going to make you take bus trips 
Uh, all those things are just going to be yeah. individual to the school. Mm-hmm. And I think you really don't know what's going to happen, but there's definitely going to be some cuts and, and some drastic measures being taken. I think, you know, as long as we can get through this as a whole, obviously as a country, we're trying to, you know, get the virus under control and try to find, you know, a cure for that or a vaccine. And, you know, until we have that, I think it's just going to be fluid um, for the next year or so. But I I think college sports and professional sports will rebound um, as fast or as quick as anything. Uh, I just think like, you know, kind of like we're all doing right now, we're all going to have to sacrifice a little bit for the greater good. Yeah. Yeah. Matt, you know, the last thing I just want to get your, pick your brain about and get your thoughts on where, you know, if, if you're coaching youth guys or, you know, teenagers that haven't hit college yet, you know, what's the one thing you would stress to them to focus on um, as far, as far as hitting goes, you know, where would you, where would you like to see guys put their focus? Well, I mean, at a young age, I think anybody before high school should just be more based off skill acquisition, um, put them in different environments of, of competitions, uh, different type of games, um, all different type of constraints to just have them compete. You know, I don't, I don't think there's anything specifically mechanically that you want to, you want to hit on. I think uh, balance is always going to be something that applies as they get older. So if you're getting them to a balanced position before they, before they swing the bat, they're always going to be good. But I think at a young age, it needs to be more um, external cue based and, and skill acquisition based. Um, Cause I think there's just a, the time during that period where the motor skills are being developed. Um, and that's where you can kind of put that, you know, compete factor in, and just bat the ball skills. I think, you know, if we're trying to give specific lessons to an 11 year old, you're out of your mind. Um, and what I mean by that is, you know, a specific swing or a specific movement, or this is how it's done. You know, you don't know how they're going to be in four or five years. They could grow seven inches and then it, that does them a disservice. So, you know, that's a lot of the times why, you know, I like multi-sport athletes. I think, you know, having them uh, just in different environments to compete and, and motor, motor learning and skills and competition and all those different things that come with, with playing different sports and being active will only make them a better baseball player down the road. So, um, yeah, just at a young age before high school, I would keep it, I would keep it more simplistic and, and, and skill acquisition and external cue base than I would uh, specific mechanics. That's a good answer. Oh. Matt, for those of, uh, uh, for all of our listeners today who like to follow up with you, or maybe they're now more interested in Maryland than you know, maybe they were before. Um, how can they find out more information about your program and how can they follow you personally on the web? Yeah. Well, I mean, I hate to be about like, you know, self-loathing or whatever it's, I really started the Instagram and Twitter account, um, to, to, uh, talk to recruits. I didn't, I didn't start it to, to get, you know, notoriety or, or do anything or sell anything. My salary is what it is that, that doesn't change. So, um, I really got into it to, to talk to recruits because hitting is very difficult to talk on the phone about. Um, so it's something that I started with that. And, and as it's kind of grown, I, I'm in it to learn. I'm in it to, to become a better coach, better person, um, and, and get exposed to all the great coaches that we have out there. Um, some better than others, <laughs> some, yeah. some less, uh, some less, you know, get on you a little bit than others too. So, <laughs> but, um, I have a, a Twitter page and hitting page. It's called Maryland made hitting. If you just, if you just put that in either of those, 
um, applications and just search it. It'll pop up. And, you know, what I try to do is, is just give my opinion and provide information that I think is going to help people. And, you know, there's not one way to do it. So um, for people that, you know, are open minded and willing to learn and look at it from a different way, it could be good. And uh, that that's kind of why I'm here is, is ultimately to, to help kids become the best person and player they could be. And if I can help parents and other coaches along the way, that's great too. That's awesome. Awesome. So definitely check him out at Maryland made hitting and Matt, thanks so much for being on the show today, man. It was a great conversation. Really appreciate it. Yeah. I appreciate you guys having me on anytime. Yeah. And if you're out there on uh, Twitter, YouTube land, thanks for being here. Subscribe to the show, share with a friend and we will see you here next time. Thanks, Matt. Yep.